So in Genesis 50, we come to the end of the story. And it's interesting because as we come to the end of Genesis, it's important for me to say, we're, we're not really at the end of anything. We're sort of at the end of Joseph's story. We'll read about his death at the end of this chapter. But it's important to note that when we come to the end of Genesis, it's not like uh, there's a nice little bow wrapped on the end of the thing. That's because God is in an ongoing journey with all of us. There's a continuing story of God that carries through Genesis into Exodus and on through the Old Testament, on into the New Testament, out of the New Testament into our lives today. And so there's never real closure on any of it in the same way that we never sort of wrap up our journey with God, but we're always sort of on the go. Our faith and our relationship with God continues to grow and to evolve over time. The reality of that is true too here in Genesis 50. So even though we're coming to the end of our study in Genesis, we're not really at the end of what God has to say about his interactions with us or his interactions with his people. This is just one more chapter, right? But as we come to Genesis 50, what we find, this is a, this is a pretty famous chapter because of the, the culmination of understanding that we see in the heart of Joseph at the end. It tells us in this middle section that after Jacob died, that Joseph's brothers are worried about revenge. They're worried because if you'll remember, they hated Joseph. They resented him. They plotted to kill him. Ultimately, they changed their mind. They just beat him within an inch of his life. They threw him in a hole. Then when they pulled him out of the hole, they sold him into slavery and they lied about that to their father. They told their father he was dead. Many years later, after Joseph had been sold into slavery, after he'd been falsely accused and thrown into prison and then pulled out, he's been elevated to a position of authority and power now, but the brothers are nervous and and justifiably so, rightfully so. We can understand why they feel nervous and they say to themselves, now that our father Jacob is dead, this is probably the moment when our brother Joseph is going to pay us back for all the wrong we did him for all the cruelty, for all, for all of the unkindness, this is probably the moment when, you know, we, we sort of have to pay the piper. And so it says that they send word to Joseph. They don't even initially do this face-to-face. They send word to Joseph through someone else, and they say, hey, just so you know, before he died, dad said you're supposed to be cool to us, right? Dad said before he died, don't be mean to your brothers. They were evil to you, but, you know, look, up, be the bigger man and kind of move on and, and be kind to them. They, they spread this message to Joseph, but there is no indication in the text that Jacob actually ever said those things. So there is some speculation that Joseph's brothers are lying about this, right? They're trying to protect themselves. And we get it because we've all been in positions where we expect revenge or positions where we want to exact revenge on other people, right? Even the kids that are in the room, you've probably had moments where your brothers and sisters made you mad, right? Probably moments where you wish you could pay them back for something mean they did. I remember um, one year for me when I was, I don't even remember how old I was at the time, probably fourth or fifth grade, uh, my parents bought me a remote-controlled dune buggy, right? And it wasn't like the cheapo Kmart dune buggy. It was like the expensive remote control dune buggy. And so uh, that was the only thing I got for my birthday that year because it was expensive. So I remember being out on the street. I was living in Glendale, Arizona at the time, out on the street with my whole family and we're driving this remote control dune buggy back and forth on the street. And it was really fast and it would go, it would do jumps and it it was really cool. Very cool toy. And my little brother, who's five years younger than me at the time, he was like, let me drive it. And I was a little nervous about letting him drive it because, you know, he's my kid brother and he probably doesn't know what he's doing. But, uh, but I did let him drive it. You know, I did the right thing. I was the gracious older brother. I let him drive the, the dune buggy. And so he starts driving around. And to be honest, he did okay. But then he came up with an idea. And his idea was, I'm going to drive it underneath myself. Like, I'm going to drive it right to me. And then I'm going to jump over it, right? So he's, he's working on uh, sort of a, a trick move here. 
And as he drives my dune buggy straight at himself at top speed, he tries to sync up the timing, but he gets the timing wrong. And so when he leaps, he actually comes down on my brand new dune buggy on my birthday that I just opened out of a box like an hour before, and it smashes into like 10 different pieces, right? It's destroyed, ruined. Well, there was a moment where I thought it would have been fair for my parents to let me go into his room and wreck all of his stuff, right? It seems like that would have been the right thing to do, that I would be able to go in and pick out a couple things that he cares about. I thought maybe my parents would say, hey, you know what, it's your birthday, and because your brand new toy got busted, we're going to get you another one. But because it was so expensive, they couldn't afford to get me another one. So instead they said, didn't we just have a fun hour together with that toy, right? Like one hour, that's what I got. That's what I got. And so I was really frustrated with my brother. And I really wanted him to have to pay for a new toy. I really wanted him to have to suffer for what he had done to me. And there was no consequence, right? Now, I don't know if that's ever happened in your life, kids who are in here. I don't know if you've ever had somebody break something of yours and you wish they had to pay for it or you wish there was some kind of consequence. But I guarantee you that by the time you're a grown-up, and for those of us in the room who are a little bit older, there are moments, maybe even in your circumstances today, where you wish people would get what's coming to them, right? Where you start to feel this frustration at the injustice that you perceive. Or you start to feel this frustration at all the wrongs that have been done you. Or all the people that have said one thing and done another. Or all of those who have betrayed you or told lies about you or whatever. You can start to feel really frustrated about that. And so for some of us, when we come to Genesis 50 and we hear that the older brothers are thinking, Man, Joseph's probably going to exact his revenge now. We get it and we think, yeah, if I was in Joseph's spot... I think now would be the time to exact that revenge. Maybe I'll beat my brothers within an inch of their life and I'll throw them in a hole. Maybe I'll sell them into slavery. Maybe I'll throw them into prison for a few years just so they can get a taste of their own medicine. And yet that isn't Joseph's response. In fact, when they send message to Joseph saying, Jacob wanted you to be kind to us, please forgive the transgressions. What we see in Joseph's response, you see this in verse 17, is that he actually weeps. He actually weeps. Now, different people have different opinions for what it is that Joseph is crying about here. I think there's a couple things we can point to. One of them is that as he's looking at his brothers, who, by the way, he already forgave. You go back to Genesis 45. He already told them that he wasn't going to hold a grudge. He already told them that he was going to bless them and care for them. That God had used what had happened in his life in a positive way and in the lives of others. So he's already given a speech similar to the one that he gives in Genesis 50 and 45. And he's been living with his brothers. I think part of the reason why we see Joseph weeping in Genesis 50 is that it's really difficult to have people assume negative things about you when you haven't given them any reason to believe those things, right? In your life and in your workplaces and in in your families and in your neighborhoods, in those moments where you're doing your best to put on the gentleness and the lowliness, the grace of Christ, where you're trying to be kind and loving and, and, and generous to other people, and yet you were perceived by other people to be disingenuous or perceived to be haughty or perceived to be arrogant or perceived to be other things, it can be kind of a drag to have people say things about you that are false. It's possible that in Joseph's own heart, he's weeping here because after all this time with his brothers, after all he had done and all he had said, they still perceive him to be someone wholly different than who he actually is. It's also possible that his weeping here has to do with his compassion and empathy for them. One thing I don't want you to miss as we look at Genesis chapter 50 is that the brothers of Joseph are in torment, right? The brothers of Joseph are tormented by their own guilty consciences. They are feeling the weight of wrongs they did decades before. 
they are still carrying around this sense of guilt and shame. And so it's important for me to say too, that part of why I think Joseph is weeping in 17 is that he grieves for his brothers. That they've been living with the consequence of their own selfish actions. That they've been living with this sense of guilt and shame and frustration and fear in some ways for a long time. The ungracious are slow to recognize grace. The unkind are slow to recognize kindness in others. And Joseph's brothers have been slow to recognize his grace, to receive his grace, to accept it. They've been slow to recognize his kindness because in their own lives, that isn't what comes normally to them. But what we do see in Genesis 50 is that the guilty here are convicted by God. They don't need Joseph to add anything on top of that. Does that make sense? Joseph's brothers don't need him to punish them more. They are already living in the punishment of their own consciences that God created them with. The brothers are feeling this fear and this guilt and this shame. And so they come in verse 18 and they fall down before him. They said, behold, we are your servants. Now they're, now they're groveling before him, right? They're, they're begging for mercy, essentially. He had already forgiven them. And what we see here is that instead of Joseph punishing them further, he does the very thing that we see Jesus do much later. Joseph is something of a foreshadowing of Jesus. And what's interesting is that Jesus was misrepresented and maligned a lot. He was falsely accused a lot. He was constantly criticized by people who looked at the good things he were doing and, and he was doing and spun them to be something negative. But Jesus' approach toward those who perceive you wrongly, Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says in Luke 6, 27, I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you, Jesus says? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. I think Joseph recognizes the mercy of God in his own life, and here now he becomes a conduit for that mercy in the life of others, even though his brothers have wronged him. Even though he has no indication other than their guilt and shame that they've ever paid for the things they did, he does not take this opportunity to pay them back. Even as they grovel before him, he's kind to his brothers who were unkind to him. He's gracious to his brothers who were cruel to him. And this is what Joseph says then in Genesis 50. And here he encapsulates in just a couple of sentences a perfect picture not only of what it looks like to be a faithful follower of God in ancient times, but he encapsulates perfectly for us this morning what it looks like to be a faithful follower of God in 2022. Don't miss it this morning. It's a great summary of all that we've seen in the book of Genesis. Joseph says this in verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? Do not fear for am I in the place of God? This is a rhetorical question. By the way, he's not looking for an answer. What he's saying is, Shalom, right? You don't need to be afraid. Be at peace because I'm not God. 
there is a God in heaven and I'm not him. I think it's beneficial to recognize that what Joseph is, he's not really asking a question. When he says, am I in the place of God? He's affirming to himself the truth. No, I am not in the place of God, right? That's what he's saying to himself. It's helpful for us this morning. And maybe you want to say this out loud. You might find yourself needing to say it to yourself regularly, but it's a great habit for us to be in to remind ourselves, nope, there is a God and I'm not him. I am not in the place of God. As I was studying this week in preparation for this message, I I found myself thinking about how much relational breakdown in our world, how much otherness, how much division, how much injustice, how much hurt, how much pain comes from us misperceiving ourselves as God. How much relational breakdown comes from our trying to be God in the lives of others, trying to punish others, trying to make sure they know how wrong they are, how guilty they are, how many bad things they've done. How much relational breakdown happens in our world because we get the answer to Joseph's question wrong. He says, am I in the place of God? And the answer to the question is no, and neither are we. If we will free ourselves from trying to be God in the lives of others, we will open up all kinds of time for other things, which we're going to see in Joseph's life as well. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 15 says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. God who knows all things. See, the problem with me misperceiving myself as God in the lives of other people, the problem when I answer the question, am I in the place of God and I start to be God or try to be God in the lives of other people is that I have limited perspective. So my judgments of other people are always flawed, right? They're always biased. They're always failed in some ways because I'm a flawed individual. When I try to be God, my judgments of others will always be broken. So instead, I turn loose of trying to be God in the lives of other people and I trust his judgments because his judgments are perfect. Because his love is perfect. Because his understanding is perfect in ways that mine and yours never will be. In Romans chapter 12, verse 19... It says, in twelve nineteen. it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that's a quote out of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? Quoting from the Old Testament, it says, Hey, God is the one who will judge. We don't have to be the ones who sit in judgment over other people. They come to Joseph and they say, Please don't hurt us. And he says, You don't need to be afraid, for I am not God. That's the first thing he says, back to Genesis 50. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Then secondly, it says this. He says in verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Two things I want you to see. Secondly, first he acknowledges that he isn't God. He trusts God to be God, and he is fine being who he is, right? Which is not God. The second thing I want you to see is that that he doesn't pretend like he hasn't been hurt. He doesn't pretend like some wrongdoing hasn't occurred, right? There is a prophetic engagement here. If you want to use Fullerton free language, there's prophetic engagement when he looks at them and says, you intended evil, right? He doesn't water that down. He doesn't back away from it. He doesn't try and pretend like what they were doing was okay. He calls it out as wrong. But in the very same breath that he's calling out their wrongdoing as wrongdoing, he says... What you intended for evil, God intended for good. So not only does he recognize that he is not God, right? But he also recognizes that God, who is God, has a redemptive purpose for all things. That he redeems and reconciles 
all things. And so he can look at his own life, the time in prison, the time in the hole, the time beat within an inch of his life where his coat was ripped away. He can look at all of that time of loneliness and pain, being falsely accused, having murder plotted against him. And in hindsight, he can look back and he can say, look, that was evil. What you did and your intention was wrong. He calls it out. We don't have to dodge that prophetic engagement. But we want, to, we want to proceed past it. I think sometimes what we want to do is, uh, or what we get caught doing, is just pointing out all the evil that we see in other people. Rather than saying, hey, there is evil, there is wickedness, there's sin, there's greed, there's pride, there's all those things. But our God is a redeemer. And therefore we don't have to spend a lot of time camped out there. He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God meant it for good in the keeping of many alive. Don't, don't miss the fact that when he says God intended it for good, he's not just talking about his own good, right? In fact, he doesn't mention his own good at all. What he says is that what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And what he's pointing at there is the good of others, the saving of other people's lives. Has there been some good for Joseph? Absolutely. Joseph isn't the same guy. He was at the beginning of the story. He has been transformed in the pit. He has been transformed in the prison. He has been transformed through the false accusations. He has been transformed. He's not the same guy at the end of the story that he was at the beginning. But what he points to is not just his own good in the redemptive purposes of God, but the greater good that God has brought about in his community, right? The greater good that God has brought about in his community, it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, famously maybe, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, God redeems all things. So this is great news. You might listen to what Joseph says and you might, you might be tempted to hear it a little bit of a threat. When he looks at his brothers and he says, hey, you don't need to be afraid because I'm not God. That might feel a little intimidating because what you might read that to be saying is, I'm not God, but there is a God and he's going to pay you back, right? There is a God and he's going to punish you. The smiting that you have coming, God's going to be the one that's going to make sure you get what for. But that isn't at all what Joseph is pointing at. In fact, what Joseph says here is, I'm not God. What you intended for evil, God redeemed for the good purpose of other people. So what he says in the same breath essentially is, I'm not God. There is a God and his purposes are good. His purposes are good. That's great news for Joseph's brothers, right? It's great news for Joseph's brothers that God, in his good purposes, has saved the lives of a bunch of Egyptians who couldn't care less about him, right? That God has saved the lives of a bunch of Canaanites who couldn't care less about him. That God's goodness is, is spreading to all people, wh- whether or not they deserve it. That's great news for Joseph's brothers. The people of Egypt didn't deserve saving. And yet God saved them. Now Joseph looks at his brothers and he said, I'm not God, there is a God. And the great news for you guys is, he's a redeemer. His purposes are good. I I wonder if you and I are able to say that to those who've wronged us. I wonder if we're able to look at our enemies or those who've lied about us or those who've hurt us or those who've betrayed us and say, hey, I'm not God. And and even the stuff that you did that was wicked, God intends it for good. And that's good news for you. Good news for you. I think sometimes we don't want it to be good news for those who've wronged us, right? That's, again, us trying to play the role of God in the lives of others. The last things I want you to see in Genesis 50, he says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And then verse 21, he says, So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. 
Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This last point might seem um, a a little bit, uh, well, maybe it'll feel a little bit elementary school to you, but I think it's worth saying. The, The final thing I see that is indicative of the heart, not only of people who followed God in ancient times, but should be the heart of people who are following God today, is that once I trust that there is a God and I'm not him, Once I recognize that God has an overarching redemptive purpose in the life of those he has created, it frees me up. Because if I'm not busy plotting revenge, and if I'm not busy trying to make sure that other people get what's coming to them, and if I'm not busy trying to make sure that everybody knows who's wronged me and how they wronged me, if I'm not working to try and be God in the lives of other people, now I got all kinds of space in my day. And you know what I can do with that space? Exactly what Joseph does. He provides for them physically. And he just talks nice to them. That might seem overly simple to you. It might feel like you're back in Sunday school that I would get up in front of us, followers of Jesus, and say, hey, instead of condemning the people that have wronged you, instead of hating them, instead of waiting for God to send the thunderbolts or thinking that you're responsible to make sure those thunderbolts fall in case God is messed up somehow, as you turn loose of your need to be God in the lives of other people, all kinds of space will be created. And my encouragement is that following the heart of Christ, that with all of that time you have, not judging and hating and exacting revenge on others, that with all that space that's created, you just do good things for other people and talk nice to them. I mean, it seems too simple to just be that, right? But that's what he does. Where does Joseph get this philosophy? Where does he get this heart? that doesn't need to be God in the lives of other people, but can just be kind to them and talk gently to them and comfort them. Well, I think his heart comes from recognizing who God is and who God has been in the life of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, hearing the stories about the way that God has worked, even in the brokenness of Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve and Noah and all the people of the earth, that God's redemptive purpose has been on the move, that there isn't a point along the way where God has stopped being God. It says in Matthew 27, verse 37, this is Jesus speaking. They were asking what the greatest commandment is. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I've said it before, but what Jesus is basically saying in this text is that if you love God, and loving God entails knowing who he is and knowing the difference between you and him, right? If you love God and you love other people, everything else takes care of itself. The rest of it gets sorted out. If we can get those two right, in this case, Joseph's faith, his adoration and admiration for the goodness and the redemptive purpose of God frees him up to love his brothers, literally. This is the perfect picture of what it means to walk with God, both here and now. Trust him to be God so that you can stop striving to be him. Have faith in his redemptive purpose, his power, and his goodness. And do good to others and speak kindly to them recognizing God's goodness to me gives me a model through which to break down the barriers between me and others. We've talked also before about second Corinthians where it calls us to be ambassadors. And that is reconciling that God or recognizing that God is reconciling me to himself. Then gives me fuel to be an ambassador of reconciliation in the lives of other people. My experience of God then plays out into my interactions with others. It is probably worth noting that in all of these things, what we're seeing made manifest in Joseph, and I have to point at this because it's so important to us here, 
What we're seeing in the life of Joseph in Genesis 50 is radiant peace rooted in confident expectation. What we're seeing is revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity, the brokenness of his fellow man. What we're seeing is absolutely prophetic engagement, but it's rooted in his own demonstrable faith. And what we're seeing is unforced appeal, kindness that looks weird in any culture, but definitely at the time in which this is happening, that he would be generous and kind to these people who've wronged him doesn't make any sense. And yet there is an unblushing oddity about what he does that then draws his brothers to understand in a greater sense who God is as well. My encouragement for us as we come to the end of our study in Genesis is to abandon our desires to get revenge in recognizing that we aren't God. To recognize that God has a redemptive purpose that is greater than even our particular wants and needs and that he's good. And then to realize that when we can turn loose of all of that and trust in who God is, that we have all this space to recognize that with that extra time, that we're not judging, that we're not pointing down our finger at other people, that we have all this room that's created in which to do good for others, to provide for others, and to speak kindly to them. As basic as that sounds, we then have the opportunity to put Jesus on display. Know that God is doing something good and we get to be a part of that. Because it's a family Sunday, I'm a little bit abbreviated this morning, but in the midst of our study in Genesis, we're going we're gonna to continue this morning through the, the sharing of communion and Gene's going to come up in just a second. But as we do, I would just remind you that Joseph's perspective here comes from an understanding of the blessing of God, the consistency and faithfulness of God, despite the brokenness of mankind. That God is a redeemer. We've seen again and again and again. And you can read the rest of the book. And by that, I mean the whole book. You can read the rest of it. And what you'll see are those same themes repeated again and again. That God is God and God is good. And he has created us to be his ambassadors. We see it even in the brokenness that we've seen in Genesis. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would, um, that you would help me to turn loose of the places where I think of myself it being in the, in the seat that only you occupy, places where I feel like I need to be the dispenser of justice or I need to be the dispenser of, uh, uh, of revenge or whatever. God, I pray that you'd just help us to turn loose of that, me and all of us, that you would help us to recognize and embrace your redemptive goodness, your purposes to bring about good for those you've created. And God, will you also help us then to be ambassadors of that goodness as we provide for others, even if they've wronged us, and as we care for them with words and attitudes and actions. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.